Well, I don't know what that is, but I like it already. Episode 40 of the Narrative Wargamer Podcast, a non-competitive 40k podcast with a focus on fun and narrative gameplay, as well as hobby news and our latest hobby projects. I am Tony Rhodes, and tonight I'm joined by Dan Wellington. Hello. As always, before we get started, you can find us at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook, or you can follow us on Twitter at Narrative 40k and on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer. You can also contact us via email at narrativewargamer at gmail.com if you have any questions or if you'd like to join us on a future episode. If you want to support the show and help us grow, you can do so by joining our Patreon from only $2 a month. As a supporter, you can listen to our bonus episodes on Patreon and gain access to our patrons-only group chat. The support from our patrons helps us produce the show and goes towards awesome new content for you guys in the future. Finally, if you want to support the show for free, you can do by visiting the awesome folks over at Element Games for all your hobby supplies and gaming miniatures. Just use our affiliate link below to visit their web store, and that way any purchases you make will directly help support the podcast. Links for everything are in the description below, so please check them out and get involved with the growing community. Yeah. So, it goes without saying, Dan, 40 episodes. It feels somewhat significant for a 40k podcast. Yep, that's a, that's a good number, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> Can you believe we've done this around 40 times? Well, you've done it around 40 times. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, I know, obviously, most uh, like the whole group of you that come on and help me out with the show, it's been very grateful. I know, um, I think Dave Barker is our longest in the tooth co-host who's been here since episode three um, pretty consistently. Um, so a big thank you to Dave for that, but also obviously to um, yourself and um, Daniel Foley and Chris Wildman and even um, oh god I forget Jake's surname Jake Noble that's it Mr. <laughs> yeah even that guy <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes like first of all thank you to you guys for you know making the show possible and then second of all thank you to the listeners. Or really making it possible because without you guys we would just be sat here talking to a microphone and each other for no real benefit to anyone else <laughs> <laughs> just but, to make ourselves feel good but yeah it's um it's funny i i suppose when i launched the show i had every intention of making it to 40 episodes and beyond but it feels weird to feel like it's already come about do you know what i mean yeah like i don't feel like i've done 40 episodes of this well i think the um the kind of the format of the show's changed a little uh over over time and we've done a few different slightly different you know some that have been really long some that have been shorter uh the the kind of change in the content is is yeah well i mean it's fairly minimal because it's you know still doing what it was doing at the start but uh, it, it feels like it's kind of ramped up a bit in the past like year. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, 
So one of the big differences was that um, probably about, you know, 20, 30 episodes ago, uh, most episodes were recorded over multiple evenings, potentially with, you know, multiple different guests based on availability. But that was just because they were quite long segments. So we tend to sort of almost have two primary elements to the episodes. Yeah. Um, but as the show's grown and we've, you know, grown with it we've come to a point now where we definitely we can make a topic like a single topic suitable to fill the entire show uh, yeah. in such a way that is you know entertaining and informative and all the rest of it and without being too rambly or at least i feel um, <laughs> it would seem yeah. that a certain number of the you know listeners would agree because they obviously keep coming back and listening um quite so yeah obviously in that time <laughs> I've had two kids, so my individual availability has varied quite a bit over the last two years, um, and now things have started to settle, like you say, over the last year to a point where we're able to produce the shows more regularly, more succinctly as a production, and just get them out to our listeners more regularly, so much so that we've even started being able to put out the bonus episodes for the patrons a little more regularly now, which yeah. is great to see. I mean, it's good given that Games Workshop have been cranking up the amount of content uh, in the past year or so. Yeah, that too. Like the fact that um, I think Octarius Book 2 was on pre order before we'd got our review episode of Book 1 out. I think it went out yeah. a couple of days before Book 2 arrived in people's hands. And I feel like we turned that around at a good pace for our normal scheduling. Yeah. Um, and as we're recording this tonight, which is going to be all about the Flashpoint series as it might do off for Flashpoint Octarius, and it is going to bookend the period we're spending in the Octarius sector. Um, today, they've announced that the first of the Warzone Natchmund books is going up for pre-order next weekend. Nice. So... Yeah, <laughs> that's going to be kicking off soon enough, and I still have to find space to squeeze in some Crusade mission packs as well. Yeah. But all of that to come in the next, hopefully, 40 plus episodes. Not to mention all the uh, Codex Crusade content and uh, other yep. bits and pieces here and there. Yeah, we've still got a short list. Well, not even such a short list now, we're on a long list. Massive. Factions. <laughs> yeah. Um, to get through for our own crusade episodes um, the fun facts ones have been getting more and more hype from the listeners and the community I keep getting more and more comments about how people enjoy them um, apparently they're even playing along at home now yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah I, th I think the fun facts episodes are becoming a firm favourite and a, a new staple of the show yeah I'll, I'll have you know that I was uh, playing along with the Octarius ones uh, from work, and uh, uh, I, I definitely, I definitely would have won. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> we'll have Absolutely to get, smashed it. We're gonna have to do a, a double Dan um, fun facts episode. Yeah, that would be good. Pitch uh, you off against each other, see who comes out on top. <laughs> but amongst um, all the various people who listen to the show, for this episode at least, there is one in particular that I want to shout out, and that is Mr. David Lewis, who is our latest Patreon. Yay! So thank you, David. I don't know if you've, if you've been listening since episode one, but whenever you have been listening from, I appreciate it greatly, and I 
hope you sincerely enjoy everything you've heard so far and are going to hear in the future. And if not, feel free to go back and start listening for episode one. I'm sure there'll be a good <laughs> few hours of extra content there for you to enjoy, even if uh, the content, uh, the quality, may be a little different. <laughs> Please don't judge us too harshly. <laughs> you can judge the earlier ones when I'm not in them harshly. That's fine. I don't mind about that. Well, Dan's fine with it, apparently. <laughs> um, and then, as another sort of nice sort of evolution of the show now, to mark our 40th episode, we can officially say that tickets for the first ever narrative wargamer Crucible of War event are now on sale. Um, yeah. Yeah, at the time that you'll be listening to this, the full event pack will be available to for everybody to see, download, have a read through, and buy your tickets because we're, we're limited to 30 places. Um, we're hosting the event at Tabletop Events in Belper, which is in Derbyshire. Um, Derbyshire, yeah, that's the one. So just sort of just close to Nottingham, close to Warhammer World, as it were, but we're not quite in the heartland, as it were. But it's a, it's a great venue. Um, I've been before for the SumpCon um, event that they actually ran with Sump City Radio. Um, Patreons, if you've listened to our recent casual conversations, they'll probably heard some of this already because we've been discussing it in advance for them, some of the um, particular details and developments as it's gone along. But we can now say the full event pack is there. It's going to be the first ever narrative wargamer event. So... It's going to be a Warhammer event, a bit unlike any other you've probably seen or heard before, because it's a narrative play event, and it's going to be wild. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite the claim. Um, well, I mean, so just the basic concept of the this event is that it's going to be a one-day event, you know, three rounds, three games, so far, so standard 40k event, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, but the difference is that one, we're not tracking rankings between rounds. We're not handing out a best general award at the end of the day. Um, and the reason for this is because it is going to be entirely impossible to judge that in any linear way. <laughs> because we're not simply running free scenarios that everybody plays over their free games. Instead, there's a whole host of scenarios at the event. And the idea is that each table at the venue is going to be set up with a specific um, narrative play mission and its own unique theatre of war. So there will be anywhere between you know 10 to 15 different scenarios and um, environment combinations that are going to be played. And everyone is going to play three games on a different table each round. But that doesn't mean everyone's going to be playing the same games as each other. So they're all going to be um, really, bit, they're all going to be quite unique missions in that they're going to be taken from a series of sources, including Flashpoint articles from White Dwarf, like we're going to discuss later tonight, um, Crus uh, Crusade mission packs, legendary missions from Warzone supplements, um, and all over the place, even a couple of 8th edition oldies but goodies that are sort of snuck in there. So cool. it's going to be really exciting, and the whole idea of the event is that. Rather than crowning one winner at the end of the day, every player is going to be able to go with three great stories about three great games that they played. And yeah, it's it's definitely not going to be GT 
you know, missions format. It's not going to be any secondaries. It's, it, I'd say, if you're interested in learning more of the specifics, go have a look at the event pack, which you can download now from the um, tickets page at Tabletop Events. There'll be a link in the description below, so you'll be able to follow that to go check it out. In fact, to be honest, I might even just put a link in the description of the show to the event pack, to be honest. <laughs> so that'll probably be in there as well. So yeah, as you can tell, Dan, I'm excited for it. I'm also excited. Uh, I suppose it also goes about saying that there will be a number of the team there. So I myself will be there. Dan, I believe. Um, yep, you're going I bought a ticket. Um, and don't quote me on this, but I think other Dan is going and I believe Dave is also making it. Ooh. The various members of the narrative wargamer team are going to be there, um, so yeah, it'll be a, a good chance for not only for you to meet us in person, but for some of us to meet each other in person for the first time. Yeah, <laughs> which is kind of it's one of the things I love about you know how much this show has sort of brought us together. So yeah, um, without further ado, Dan, I'm just conscious that there's a lot to get through with these flashpoints. We're literally going through like six months worth of content. In one episode, so I think we're going to have to dive straight into it. Let's crack on then. Yeah, so we'll be back in a second, guys. And we're back, guys. So tonight we're going to be breaking down and looking at the long running Flashpoint Octarius series from White Dwarf. Now, I say long running because this one has literally taken six months worth of issues to get to this point. Um, and we're only, in fact, actually going to be even pick, picking parts from some of them. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, there's a load of extra content in here that if you've got these white dwarfs, or even if you haven't, I think you, I think eventually they're going to make their way to the Warhammer Vault. Um, so if you've got a Warhammer yes. Vault subscription... You'll probably be able to get them in there, maybe even one or two of them already. Um, but yeah, there's tons of crusade rules in here. There's a bunch of theatres of war, and there's some um, crusade missions, which, to be honest, they play and behave more like legendary missions from the Warzone supplements, which is one of the reasons why I want to highlight them. Um, in addition, across the various issues, there are data sheets for a couple of like unique characters slash units um, for use in recreating these specific battles so there's a couple of death watch squads um, there's a special character speed boss for evil sons and there's even a special character death copter pilot for the evil sons um, there's a bunch of interesting characters there um, there are a couple of crusade relics but mostly limited to tyranids and death watch um, but there is, in particular, um, one magical relic from the latest, um, well, I say latest, the last in the series of the Flashpoints, which is, in fact, our feature favourite crusade relic, a brand new magical bone. Hey! So, the only one that I'm going to bother shouting out for tonight is the Horn of the Ashkov Behemoth. And essentially, it think Tyranid Monster-style scale, yep. giant stag. Okay. And this bone is one of its antlers. All right. Okay. <laughs> um, and 
you know, it's just one of these do things better relics, to be honest. It's, you know, the bearer is eligible to declare a charge in a turn in which they advanced, and they can re-roll advanced rolls for the bearer. I mean, that's nice. It is nice, but I just love the fact that throughout all these Flashpoint series so far, we keep finding more magical bones for our awkward boy to collect. I mean, yeah, it's kind of a, a 40k staple, isn't it? That yeah, The kind of, like, relic in a box collecting trophies, that kind of thing. Like, but where would 40k be if things weren't covered in bones and skulls? Exactly. Or antlers, or dragon fangs, or... Yeah. Um, reef bone trinkets or all sorts but yeah i think <laughs> so, it's yeah, a fine tradition it is and at some point i'm going to probably build paint and play with mr magical bones i will make him <laughs> at some point but nice. yeah um across all these issues each of them tend to feature you know like one or two crusade relics which if you can if you win a game using that theater of war or playing that mission you can potentially upgrade a character with but most of them are tied to Tyranids and Deathwatch, <laughs> just given the nature of the missions yeah. um, through here. Like I said, there's the Horde of the Behemoth is one of the um, few relics that could be taken by any faction character, so it was deserving of a shout-out for us, if no one else. <laughs> nice. So yeah, like so even beyond what we're going to talk about in depth tonight, which we're going to look primarily at the Theatres of War and mm -hmm. the uh, three particular, I'm going to call them legendary missions because that's what I feel like they are more like the right. Crusade missions. Um, and we're going to look at the Tyranid Army of Renown. The, yes. Um, what's it called now? The Crusher, Tyranid Stampede. Crusher Stampede. That's the one. AKA yeah, so, Nidzilla. Yeah. So this is probably one of the things that maybe you have heard of um, on other shows or other content creators covering because it's one of these borderline instances where it's definitely been shaking things up in matched play um, yep. and has been making an appearance and was getting you know some traction and coverage but at the same time it's also really cool <laughs> and has a strong narrative theme to it and exists as an army of renown in white dwarf which is the first time that we've seen an army of renown in this format yeah so it's worth covering and talking about and that's what we're going to do because it is cool. Uh, it's definitely cool. Um, so yeah, so what we'll do is we're going to start with the Theatres of War. Now, if you remember when we did Flashpoint Charidon, there were about 12 to 13 of them, and we just randomised a couple to talk about. Yeah. Well, this time around, there's only four, but okay. that gives us an opportunity to look at them all. And yes. part of the reason for that is because when we get to the missions we're going to talk about later, basically each one of these phases of war is kind of paired with each of these missions to be the intended place to play that fight. Okay. So, so you've got sets the scene. So you've got a really like narrative fluffy mission that you play in this specific theater of war. Or you've got four theatres of war, four missions, whatever that you can mix and match and play with whatever pick the bits you like yeah, that's exactly it so as always, you know, these missions can be played without these theatres of war and these theatres of war can be played with any mission, um, which are really cool because especially when <laughs> the very first one we're going to talk about is called Beneath the Mirror Sea and it is Ooh. a theatre of war for underwater battles 
Yeah, like how cool is that? Like the I think we've had some rules previously for like void battles, you know, yep. on like spaceship exteriors and stuff like that, but we've now got some rules for fighting underwater. Um so let's just break this down now. So we've got beneath the mirror sea. Um first up, deadly environment. If you're playing a crusade battle, at the end of the battle, each unit that has a crusade card that was part of your army gains one additional experience point. And at the end of the battle, okay. um, you gain one additional requisition point. Ooh. Which is interesting to say that that's just a thing that both players get for fighting here, because it is just deemed that hazardous, that there must be some innate natural you know, rewards or incentives for doing so. Interesting. Now the actual sort of hazards, as it were. So first of all, we have restricted movement. Subtract one from the movement characteristics of units, and subtract two from charge rolls. Okay. Because it is not easy to move through bodies of water. No. Yes, I found that in the past. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. As especially when you can imagine, you know, you're a space marine in power armor, or you're a guardsman with a scuba tank on. Yeah. It's a. It, you're not going to be as mobile as you were on the surface. Yes, I have noticed it is quite hard to run through a swimming pool. Yeah. <laughs> and to that end, it's also probably quite difficult to fire a weapon through a swimming pool. And true story. Such... <laughs> I mean, I hope not. <laughs> I hope there's a true story that you've got there as an experience, but <laughs> to be fair, I think that was actually something they covered on Mythbusters, wasn't it? Yes, I was, was going to say, I that. saw it on Mythbusters. <laughs> Firing a bullet um, through water does work, but also massively reduces its range of effectiveness. Yeah. But to that end, in the 41st millennium, even the humble lasgun can apparently be modified to be somewhat efficient underwater. I'd be, <laughs> so, I'd be surprised if it couldn't. It's a lasgun. Yeah. Um, it'd be interesting to see how an auto gun or even a heavy bolter would be modified mm. <laughs> to work underwater, but apparently it's doable. Those tech priests yeah. can do anything. Well, the the bolters in particular, because they have um, special rounds that are like gas powered, don't they? The Death Watch, at least in previous editions, have used them as like for sniper bolters and stuff. Uh, oh, they've got the technically at the moment. Don't the Death Watch have those weird seeker rounds that are like a smart <laughs> system? Quite possibly adjust the trajectory in midair, like a little. Uh, little guided torpedo bolter <laughs> yeah so to be fair yeah just, I mean, being able sure. to fire, Why not? just being able to fire underwater doesn't seem that far-fetched by comparison so modified weaponry each time an attack is made with a ranged weapon half the range characteristic to a minimum of one inch so all the weapons the armies have brought have been modified to work underwater with no reduced effectiveness except for a reduction in range so it's going to be quite a close quarter fight considering all your ranged weapons are at half capacity, you know, half range. But at the same time, everyone is minus one movement and minus two from charges. Nice. So it's going to be quite a close fought battle, but also kind of fought in slow motion in a weird way because while all ranged weaponry is at half range, you've also got everyone moving at minus one movement. Yeah. And 
subtract two from charge rolls. Hmm. So, yeah, sure, you need to be in 15 inches to fire that bolt rifle. But at the same time, even though you're in 15 inches of the enemy, they they need to roll, you know, really high on a charge roll to get in. Yeah. And vice versa. Unfortunately for everyone involved, moving slowly and painstakingly means that you are probably quite easy prey to the predators of the deep whose, you know, realm ah. you are currently disturbing. Oh. So the other rule for fighting in the um, the underwater environment is the predators of the deep. At the start of each battle round, the player who's taking the first turn rolls 1d6 on the following table and applies the result. Because of course, we can't have a theater of war without a table. Gotta have some random tables. <laughs> on a one, it is open water. The clamor of battle has startled nearby wildlife, driving them away. But there is no ill effect. Very. <laughs> on a two to three, there are some flesh stripper swarms. So this is basically piranhas. Alien nice. piranhas. Descending in a swarm and picking their chosen prey clean in seconds, these creatures are virtually impossible to fight off once they scent blood. Each player must establish which unit from their army is furthest from an objective marker to determine which unit is affected. If the mission you are playing does not use objective markers, instead establish which unit in each player's army is furthest from the centre of the battlefield. Oh. Once each player has determined which unit from the army is affected, that player rolls 1d6 for each model in the affected unit. For each result of a 1, that model's unit suffers 1 mortal wound. So it's basically dangerous checks for whichever unit of yours is on the periphery of the battlefield. Okay. Because you're isolated and the predators have passed yep. upon you. And that affects both players. On a 4 to 5, we have an octopod ambush. Emerging from hidden dens, these vast creatures ensnare prey with lashing tentacles, dragging them back into their lairs to be devoured. So it's a giant squid. <laughs> or giant alien squids. Yep. The player who is taking the first turn randomly determines one area terrain feature or obstacle on the battlefield. Each Ooh. player then rolls 1d6 for each unit from the army that is within 1 inches of that terrain feature. Adding 1 to the result if that unit is a monster or vehicle unit, and an additional 1 to that result if that unit is a titanic unit. On a 1 to 3, until the end of the battle round, half the movement characteristic and models in that unit, and that unit cannot advance. So the smaller um, targets are more likely to be affected. Right, yeah. Um, so your infantry and bikes and such, um, you know, because autocade motorbikes are notorious for going over all terrain, including underwater. <laughs> underwater, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's going to be snaring them, reducing their movement even more, and can't advance. So you are basically going to be pinned in place if you're a minus one movement for the battle, for the feat, theater of war itself, and then halving it. Yeah, like my orcs will be moving two inches. With no ability to advance. It's it's quite slow. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then finally, if you were to roll a six on the Predators of the Deep table, then you've attracted the attention of a gargantuan Charcharasaur. Okay. 
So this is a megalodon, basically a giant, giant shark. Yeah. These creatures are thought by many to be a myth, with bodies many hundreds of meters long. Even the largest war machines can be swallowed whole if they are too slow to avoid the vast lunging moors. Like this thing is literally going to eat land raiders whole. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you've, you've built it up quite a lot there. Let's see what the rules are. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Let's see if it lives up to that. Determine the unit on the battlefield with the highest total wounds characteristic. That is the cumulative wounds characteristic of all models that unit contains. So, you know, your Crusader scored the Black Templars is going to be 40 wounds of Space Marines, for example. Um, if two or more units are tied, randomly determine one of these to be affected. The player whose army that unit is from rolls 2d6. If the total is greater than the unit's unmodified move characteristic, for each point that the total exceeds that unit's unmodified move characteristic, that unit suffers d3 mortal wounds. Ooh. And gives us an example. For example, the, if the affected unit's unmodified move characteristic is 6 inch, the player who controls that unit rolls 2d6 and gets a result of a 9, the total exceeds that movement characteristic by 3, so the unit would suffer 3 d3 mortal wounds. Ah, yes. That could be nasty. So yeah, my movement five orc boys, if they've got them, you know, if their thirty man yeah. mob is the biggest wound characteristic around, then if I roll a ten, I'm gonna be suffering a ten on two D six, say, but if I do that, I'm gonna be suffering five D three mortal wounds. Oof. Yeah. So it can devour quite a bit in one big bite. Yeah. Quite tricky for it to do much to a vehicle though. Because um, most of them have got, you know, but I movement high movement, ten or yeah. higher. Still, what's the movement on a land raider? Uh, I guess ten. <laughs> but maybe it's not going to be swallowing a land raider whole, but it could do a number of mortal wounds to it potentially. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely a, a terror for uh, an orc boy squad, though, for sure. Oh yeah. Um, so that is the uh, battling beneath the mirror sea. So that's our underwater mm -hmm. environment, which sadly is the one environment that doesn't have an associated mission. Ah. Uh. Yes, but I'm sure any mission, when simply converted to playing underwater, is going to be made far more interesting. Uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, next up, we have the ice fields of death of Bayanzia. Um, a peculiar name because the planet itself is named Death of Bayanzia. Okay. <laughs> Hence the ice fields of Death of. Nice. <laughs> so this is a, yeah, think, you know, frozen lake slash um, avalanche you know, mountainous cliffside. Anywhere that's going to be hospitable in the snow and ice. Right, yes. Uh, a nice, totally safe area to fight in the uh, ice world. Exactly. So, deadly environment. Again, an extra XP for every unit involved and an extra requisition for playing in this environment. Cool. Yeah. We then have ice yes, flows. Each time a unit advances or charges, 
For each dice result of a 1 or a 2, that unit suffers one mortal wound. So that's not like dangerous checks. That's if the advance roll is a 1 or a 2, you'll yeah. suffer a mortal wound. If you your 2d6 to charge is a 6 and a 2, you'll suffer one mortal wound. Oof. So, you know, moving too hastily and you could have a few fighters falling through the ice. Classic. Swirling Ice Storm. Each time a ranged attack is made, if the attacker is more than 24 inches from the target, a hit roll of a 1-2-4 fails, irrespective of any abilities that the weapon or the model making the attack may have. Hmm. So, you are... So, funnily enough, the modifiers and ballistic seals and things kind of don't matter, because say you were BS-free and you had a plus one to hit, you would still be hitting on fives. Yeah. You wouldn't be making it hit on fours because the rule says you hit on fives and you have a plus one to hit. That's not quite how it works. It would be a... You would be hitting on twos, but the one to four is a fail regardless. Yeah. It's like like transhuman physiology, but for (laughs) hitting and related to ice rather than space marines. (laughs) Trans-frozen targeting. Yes. Also, that sounds like it would be easier to hit the Calexus Assassin. In theory. I also like the idea how it... <laughs> sure. More, I, I like how it also, in theory, doesn't affect orcs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, they're just as accurate in an ice storm as they are normally. <laughs> yes, I like this all of a sudden. <laughs> um, but yeah, interestingly enough, I wouldn't be surprised if that's something that we see potentially in a future codex or supplement publication because as we know white dwarf can sometimes be a bit of a testing ground for rules concepts and we've not yet seen i don't believe a transhuman effect on the hit roll uh we, we have actually Ooh, um, in the in the custodies book ah, there so is one in yeah literally just just now the i think it's the um uh the new Blade Champion or whatever he is, the, the new character uh, has one uh, has a rule like that, but for melee combat, like you can't hit him on 1s, 2s and 3s in yes, melee, I think. I remember that being previewed so I obviously have not got a codex a copy of Custodes yet, but I had, do you remember seeing that in the preview? Yeah. Um, yes, you're right. However, funnily enough, this is an issue from five months ago. Yeah, so there so you go. It is funny how that has then made its way into circulation in a mainline ball set somewhere. It's, so, yeah. it's obviously a mechanic they've they've got in mind that they're thinking of. Yeah, but, uh, trial it here and uh, implement it elsewhere. Start with one model in one army, see yeah. if it you know, plays nicely, and then maybe advance into other stuff. Because I could see that being something that, like, say, Lightning Reflexes in the new Eldar Codex when it arrives could be. You it know, could definitely be than... a an alternate take on the minus one to hit, couldn't it? Yeah. You know, basically transhuman for hitting. <laughs> yeah. It's a slightly different feel to the the kind of harder to hit type rules. Yeah. However, you know what does hit hard regardless? Go on. An avalanche. Yeah. <laughs> so, the other part of the death fields um, is the devastating avalanches so we have a little deployment map to go with this one so imagine if you will a little similar to the geothermal eruption 
from one short table edge, there's going to be an advancing area of danger. In this case, okay. because there is an avalanche you nice. know, that is falling in. Now, it's not denotative markers that move. It is a a, a triple lineup of eight-inch sections. No other okay. avalanche zones one, two, and three. So, you know, eight inches, um, then sixteen, then maps twenty-four. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Accurate. <laughs> yeah. Um, from a short table edge. At the start of the first battle round, the player who is taking the first turn randomly determines one battlefield edge that is not a player's battlefield edge um, to be the avalanche battlefield edge. At the start of each battle round, the avalanche covers all the battlefield with crushing snow and ice, as shown in the example below. So I suppose, technically, if you're playing a mission where the short table edges were the player edges, this uh, edge would actually come in from the long table edges. Sure. Yeah. Which are 24 inches in most boards these days is going to cover... Sort of half, a lot of it yeah half the board yeah um so at the start of the second battle round all units excluding units that can fly in avalanche zone one which is the one touching the table edge yep suffers d6 mortal wounds okay until the end of the and that is um, at the start of the second battle round yeah so it's not that doesn't repeat that is just battle round two Yep, that happens. So that's not going to happen then in rounds three and four and so on. Um, but also as part of this, until the end of the battle, units excluding aircraft units in Avalanche Zone One gain the benefits of light cover and heavy cover. <laughs> cool. Because they're now wading through heavy snow and rock and rubble that's come crashing down. Um, and until the end of the battle, every part of the battlefield in Avalanche Zone One has the difficult ground trait. Yeah, so... Uh, again, yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Then, at the start of the third battle round, all units, excluding units that can fly, in avalanche zones oh, 1 and 2, suffer D3 mortal wounds. So it's okay. not as heavy a hit, but it is, again, if you're in zone 1, you are suffering some damage again, but not as much. Yeah. Uh, and again, then all non-aircraft units in zones 1 or 2 benefit from light, heavy, and difficult ground yeah. um, covers, as it were. And then from the fourth battle round, all units, excluding units that can fly in zones 1, 2, and 3, also for one mortal wound, and all units except aircraft in those zones gain light cover, heavy cover, and difficult ground. Cool. So, it's the idea that uh, the avalanche comes crashing in across, you know, that half of the board, and Obviously, its initial impact is going to be its most devastating. Yeah. Uh, it, it does spread out more, but obviously it loses some of its momentum, and anyone caught in the wake is going to be suffering repeated mortal wounds, um, but <laughs> gaining the benefits of light cover, heavy cover, and the drawback of difficult ground, because you're yeah. now wading through, you know, a avalanche rock wall, as it were. That's cool, yeah. So that one is going to feature in the first mission we're going to talk about later tonight. That is the Excellent. suggested theatre of um, war for that particular um, game. One second. I suppose it's worth noting at this point, if I haven't already mentioned it, is the fact that I'm obviously flicking through several copies of White Dwarf here. 
uh, <laughs> forwards. And I apologize to any listeners if there is a repeated uh, or disturbing noise of turning pages. I will do my best in the edit to try and reduce that effect if it's there. You're welcome. <laughs> Next up, we have the Stim Saturated Butcher Planes. So this is basically Fink's um, Speedwire, you know, uh, desert wasteland racing sort of thing. You know, anywhere large open plains um, devoid of anything other than, you know, careening vehicles and Mad Max style conflicts. Okay. And in addition to that, throw in the fact that the atmosphere and the air as a whole is kind of all laced with chemical, uh, chemical residue. Right. Hence, stim saturated. Yes. Um, so first up, we uh, for playing in this theater of war, we have the flatlands. You can re-roll advanced rolls for units from your army. That's nice. Yep, because it is literally you know <laughs> open savanna sort of thing. There's very little that's actually really going to be getting in the way of moving across this wasteland. Okay. Uh, transitways, basically roads. Um, there's a designer's note here that says we recommend placing a number of roads on the battlefield. These should aim to be at least 6 inches in width and extend in runs of at least 24 inches. Some portions of the road network on the planet will have fallen into disarray or be damaged by the movement of sort of large livestock herds. So it is not necessary for all sections of roadway to connect to each other, but roads do not count as terrain features and do not have any terrain traits. So, do you remember probably about 10 years back or so Games Workshop did actually sell sort of like little um, what, what's the word what's like fat mats made out of and stuff uh, I what it's called like mouse mat material like stuff neoprene neoprene that's the word I was looking for yeah about 10 years back or so Games Workshop used to sell yeah a kind of sort of neoprene like road roll up that you would unfurl right like these sections of um, road. Um, okay. They were about six inches in depth or width. Um, okay. I, I think it's a bit of a callback to that. Right. This idea that, you know, you can denote these areas of broken roadways because that's what this is, you know. Um, I don't know my uh, my American states so much, but there are many American films where road journeys are taken on very long roads in very open lands you know where you can see to the horizon think yeah. that sort of you know environment okay um so yeah in the movement phase each time a vehicle or biker unit is selected to move if that unit is wholly on a road until the end of the phase add three inches to the movement characteristic of models in that unit if that unit okay. remains wholly on that road for its entire move add six inches to the move characteristics of those models instead. Cool. So when you consider that, you know, most bikes are already auto-advancing an additional six inches as well, you really can speed off with uh, your bikes in this. Yeah. Um, however, there are also hyper-aggressive fauna. So basically these, you know, these super-sized... Um, wildlife of dangerous cattle and such running okay, around the place right, as well. Yeah. At the end of the battle round, roll 1d6 for each unit within 3 inches of any area terrain features. 
On a 2 to 5, that unit suffers D3 mortal wounds, and on a 6, it suffers 3 mortal wounds. Oof. Because presumably that's where the fauna is hanging out on what little bits of, you know, significant yeah. scenery there is. <laughs> and then, the chemical saturation is represented by the residue aero stims. Before the battle, after determining who the attacker and defender will be, the attacker rolls 1d3 and consults the table below to determine what right. effects the Eros teams in the atmosphere have on the warriors. Because, of course, there's a table. Of course, there's a table. Uh, d3 table on a 1. Heedless aggression. While a unit is within engagement range of any enemy units, that unit automatically passes morale tests. Okay. So cool. your berserkers actually get to be fearless for once. <laughs> 2. Stim fueled impetus. You can re-roll charge rolls made for units from your army. Yeah. And on a free, steroidal stupor. Each time an attack with an armor penetration characteristic of minus one is allocated to a model, that attack has an armor penetration characteristic of zero instead. Okay. So everybody just gets to be a little bit inert to pain because nice. they're too busy drinking in the uh, roid, uh, hmm. roid stenched atmosphere. <laughs> That's very interesting. Yeah, it is. And you'll see why it gets interesting when we get to the mission that, again, uses that particular roadways and stims um, cool. environment. My my initial thought on that is it sounds like they've basically invented rules for official uh, theatre of war, Planet Bowling Ball. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, isn't it? You know, Planet Bowling Ball with drugs. <laughs> yeah. It's quite interesting that the all the special rules are, you know, to make things faster or better in melee, um, and penalising st- standing back in a in a ruin or whatever. Yeah, to, is... to account for the fact that presumably the intent is there isn't much terrain on this table. Yes, and as you will see when we get to the mission, there is incentives for m- keeping moving and staying on the move. However, we have our final Theatre of War from this Flashpoint series, which is the Bloodstained Manufactorums. So this is basically, think Abattoir meets uh, meets Forge Factory. Right, yes. A large industrial scale. Yeah. If if the Mechanicum did burgers. (laughs) I mean, yeah. I'm immediately thinking Necromunda with the... um... With the corpse starch. Uh, yes. Uh, the yeah. there's that there's that gang, isn't there, that uh, kind of they work in yeah. the in the uh, corpse starch. Yeah, the factories. corpse grinders. Yes. Yep. <laughs> well, thankfully for the residents of the planet at least, this is not human abattoiring. <laughs> this is mega fauna. So this is the, you know, giant herds of mega grocks and you know basically dinosaur sized lizard cows. Sure, you know. I mean, the, the you say that, but things. it is it is narrative. You can uh, you can insert your own narrative there. Yeah, it can be any variety of thing being butchered for variously valuable uh, meats, oils, chemicals, and all the rest of it. Because this is also mixing in the concept of a chemical processing plant. So obviously, okay. yeah, you know, these megafauna creatures have been herded here and then sent through this abattoir to be butchered for the various things and resources you would get out of them which includes lots of chemical runoff 
you know, used for all sorts of things from Promethium to medical supplies to, you know, <laughs> machine lubricants to probably making tallows for all the candles that the Imperium yes. needs, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. All sorts of stuff. So it's kind of, again, uh, this is also the reason why the um, the chemical saturated planes are such, because these are the chemical plants producing all that stuff that then runs off into the rest of the wasteland of the planet. Right. Cool. So, the Bloodstained Manufactorums. Uh, first up, we have the Cloying Odour of Death. Well. Good start. Yep. Before the battle, at the end of the Create Battlefield step, the players roll off, starting with the winner. If players are fighting a combat patrol or incursion mission, each player selects one area to in feature that has not already been selected, and if you're fighting um, a larger one, so a strike force or a Onslaught. Onslaught. Each player selects two area terrain features that have not previously been selected, alternating. Those area terrain features gain the following ability. Deathly Reek Aura. While a unit is within <laughs> three inches of this area terrain feature, subtract one from the leadership characteristics of models in that unit. And subtract one from combat attrition tests taken for that unit. Okay. Because believe it or not, a you know industrial abattoir designed for the butchering of giant mega creatures is probably not the most high spirited place to be. <laughs> no, true. Then we have stim exposure. This phaser of war uses stim station tokens to represent areas where the powerful stimulants manufactured on the planet have been stockpiled. When exposed to these chemicals, the body can exhibit rapid and powerful changes. Thanks to the unique way these synthetic materials are keyed to different organisms, the same chemicals can have very different effects on different subjects from the same species. So, okay. are you getting strong Fabius Bile vibes? I'm point? getting strong random table vibes. Ooh, your instincts are well attuned, Dan. <laughs> Before the battle, at the end of the create battlefield step, the players roll off, starting with the winners. Players alternate placing stim station tokens on the battlefield until each has placed two tokens. Stim station tokens cannot be placed within six inches of either player's deployment zone and cannot be placed within twelve inches of each other. So, no man's land is going to be spot, you know, dotted with yeah. stim stations. When playing a game using this phaser of war, both players have access to the following action. Endure stim exposure. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. right. There's some brilliant names in this one. Action. At the end of your movement phase, any number of infantry or cavalry units from your army can start to perform this action. So squig hard riders can be doing this. Nice. As if they needed any more stims. Each unit must be within three inches of a different stim station token. This action is completed at the end of the turn. Uh, when this action is completed, roll 1d6 and consult the table opposite to see what effects chemicals have on the unit performing the action. At the end of the battle, any effects the chemicals have on a unit wear off. Each unit can only perform this action once per battle. So no maintaining your stims for your crusade units. Aww. They are but temporary boons. Though it would be fun if you, uh, if you get a funky result and then you uh, upgrade the unit after that you could pick a crusader uh, upgrade that has a similar sort of effect 
I mean, I certainly feel if, say, you're playing a Crusade Force and you include characters of the ilk of Fabius Bile or yeah. um, Illuminators or Zarek and so yep. on, you know, the sort of mad scientist special characters, I wouldn't be opposed to a, a, a opponent paying, say, one requisition to maintain permanently whatever <laughs> enhancement they gain from this particular mission. That would be quite funny, wouldn't it? It would. So, our various exposure results. Um, between 1 to 6. On a 1, heightened perception. Increased ballistic skill of these models by 1. 2, aggressive enhancements. Plus 1 to attack characteristics. 3, dulled pain receptors. Plus 1 toughness. 4, adrenaline adrenaline replication. Add 3 inches to the move characteristics of models in this unit. 5, subdued instincts. Add 2 to the leadership model characteristics of models in this unit. And on a six, it was a befouled batch, and this unit suffers D3 mortal wounds. Excellent. Because, you know, ingesting strange chemicals cannot be universally positive. <laughs> no. And yeah, that... Yum, yum, yum. That is all of our theatres of war. They're cool. Again, you can see that they're, they're quite... Um specific in the nature of the environment they represent. They're not just something like this is a storm that could be blowing through anywhere. You know, yeah. it is kind of tied to a this is a very particular thing. This is a chemical processing plant, you know. Yeah. It's good though. It's uh I mean, we've got so many of them out in various publications now. If if there isn't, you know, if you haven't got rules somewhere for fighting in a storm, like just look sure a bit harder. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you can find it. Like, I mean, there's there's about four of them in the open war deck for a start. Yeah, very true. So yeah, so that is everything for the Fierces of War presented here. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in a second where we're going to actually talk about the three different missions that are presented across these issues to tie into these various Fierces of War. So that's going to be fun. Are you enjoying the Narrative Wargamer podcast? If you are, why not check out our community Facebook group at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook. We share our latest hobby projects and narrative battles and aim to grow a community for casual and narrative 40k players. We're always excited to see the awesome things our listeners are working on and it is a great place to hang out with other like-minded hobbyists. You can also find us on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer and over on Twitter at Narrative40k for regular hobby updates on our 40k projects. And we're back guys. So we're now going to break down the missions from across these issues of White Dwarf. Um, and again, I think these play a little bit more like legendary missions in their the way that they deviate from the norm, as it were, as opposed to just crusade mission pack missions, which in themselves great variations on standard gameplay, but these are particularly out there, as you'll see why when we get to them one by one. So first up. Yep. Uh, let me find the page. Oh yeah, this is the weird thing there. This was the one instance where the theatre of war relevant for it is not in the same issue. Well, that's 
That's just inconsiderate. It is, right? But I've got it here now, so this is fine. Okay. Cool. The first one is... Uh, dangerous specimens. So this is actually meant to represent a fight between um, various space marine chapters defending a world from Tyranid invasion. And the reason why they're defending um, these specimens is because they're actually local wildlife. In this case, I think it's like packs of ice wolves. And the idea is that the Tyranids are actually trying to devour them so they can gain their genetic memory of the lay of the land. Okay, that's cool. Because they, like, these are like the apex predators of the region and the hive mind has been struggling to overwhelm the Imperial forces, but it can identify that these predators still manage to like, you know, slip by the defences and inflict casualties on the Imperials anyway. And to this end, the Space Marines of the Death Watch are also aware that this is what, not necessarily what the hive mind is trying to do as such, but it knows that it's a thing the hive mind can do. Right. So yeah. it's trying. They're trying to ensure that they actually protect these local, you know, predators, and prevent them from being consumed by the Tyranids. Okay. So that they can't gain that, you know, local knowledge. Um. So it it's an interesting setup. Uh, because yeah, <laughs> I mean, if if I'm honest, it's a bit of a stretch, isn't it? Right, so let me uh, let's see if the description sort of makes it sound more valid than how I've described it. So, <laughs> As the Tyranid menace sweeps across death of Bionzea, the Dark Krakens, in this case, it's a basement chapter, yeah. um, scramble to interpose themselves between the Devourer and the world's predatory fauna, lest the Hive fleets incorporate the deadly creature's genetic code into new and ever more horrific bioforms. Nice. So yeah, they are, they're like, these are apex predators on this planet. We don't want the Tyranids to start taking genetic tips from them. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what's worse than a Lictor and a Kachan Devil? A Lictor crossed of a Kachan Devil. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that sort of mentality. So, I mean, cool. That's, it's, it's fun. My <laughs> my main, <laughs> main thought is, why don't they just, like, kill them? <laughs> like the, yeah, the local predators. Like, yeah. just... Well, if, if you read issues of White Dwarf, there is a bit more in-depth on it that sort of explains sure. it all, but um, the general gist is, yes, they're trying to protect these things that are, you know, part of the wildlife, so the Tyranids don't get even deadlier. I mean, cool. Some, so, uh, some sort of, um, yeah, wildlife protection space marines. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh! It should be the Rainbow Warriors! <laughs> yeah, it should be. Let's get Dave on it. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> so yeah, to that end, you've kind of got an unusual map set up for this mission in that you've got your traditional long table edge deployments, you know, I think Dawn of War-esque style, where yep. you've got about 12 inches deep of, you know, deployment zone each. The attacker is on one long table edge. Cool. Yep. The defender, though, has their 12 inches worth of deployment zone start at the center line of the battlefield. Right. And is back 12 inches from that. Okay. So um, the setup defines there as being a 10 inch no man's land between the two players' deployment zones. And then obviously you've got this sort of same space again behind the defender's deployment line. Yeah. Um, specifically, the front of the uh, defender's deployment line is supposed to be 18 inches 
forward from the objective markers because the only three objective markers in this mission start the game in that neutral zone behind the defender's deployment zone. Okay. So the idea being that they're forming a cordon, essentially. You know, like the attackers are going to have to get through them to get to the objectives behind them. Yeah, cool. That makes sense. <clears throat> now, the special rules we have that play out throughout this, we have dense forests. At the end of the deploy forest step... Uh, no, nope. The deploy forest step. No. At the end of the deploy forces step... Yep. The attacker can select up to three infantry units from their army and redeploy them. If Ooh. the mission uses the strategic reserves rules... Any of those units can be placed into strategic reserve without having to spend any additional CP, regardless of how many units are already in strategic reserve. Sneaky. If both players have the re if both players have abilities that redeploy units, you roll off and the winner chooses who deploys first. So, you know, as the attacker, you get some basically free sneaky stratagems, you know, redeploys and free stuff in strategic reserve. Cool. Uh, we then have cornered beasts. At the start of each battle round, each player rolls 4d6 for each unit from their army that is within range of an objective marker. And for each result of a 1, that unit suffers one mortal wound. Because okay, unfortunately, yep. the local predators don't understand that the space marines are trying to defend them. <laughs> they just think they're being cornered and you know they're lashing out in desperation at anyone and everything yep. that comes near. Um, then we have Desperate Intervention. Every unit in the Defender's Army, excluding Titanic units, is eligible to make heroic interventions as if it were a character unit. Cool. So that's kind of like the two defining things of the role of attacker and defender. The attacker has uh, additional strategic and sneaky ways of deploying their forces. Um, to maneuver themselves to you know to attack these objectives, whereas the defender has a very reactive force in that they're able to you know intervene with all their units in order to try and body block you know on behalf of these predators. Yeah. Cool. Our mission objectives: um, the Urson Wolf Dens. This is progressive, knowing the terrible threat the Tyranids will pose if they gain access to these creatures' genetic code. The Dark Krakens sell their lives daily to prevent it. Or the Rainbow Warriors, as we are determining. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I like the idea is the Rainbow Warriors protecting Catch-On Devils. Yeah. For whatever reason. <laughs> um, at the end of each player's command phase, uh, the player whose turn it is scores 5 victory points for each of the following conditions they are satisfied to a maximum of 15. They control 1 or more, 2 or more, 3 or more objective markers. Okay. The, there are only 3 markers. So five points for each objective. Yes. With yeah. nine for definite nine, nine for addition wordage to that yeah. effect. Okay, sure. <laughs> this mission objective cannot be scored in the first battle round. Yeah. Um The Great Devourer, endgame. Earth and Wolf Dens are critical to both sides. The force that has control of them at the end of the battle will reap great benefit in the wars to come on this world. At the end of the battle, if one player controls more objective markers than their opponent, that player scores 20 victory points. Cool. So yeah, progressively hold as many as you can throughout the game, but at the end game, whoever happens to hold the most at the end gets a big bunch of victory points. Yeah. 
Uh, and then there's a victory bonus if you're playing Crusade, where the victor gets to select two units from an army to be marked to greatness instead of one. Nice. That was good. So yeah, so that's the dangerous specimens scenario. Yep. Um, but I think it's just interesting how it's your sort of classic attacker and defender holding their objectives mission. But actually, the defender kind of wants to keep the objectives at arm's length. Yeah, that's uh, it's interesting. There's a, there's a bit of a trade-off there, isn't there? Yeah, it's like the idea that the objectives are hazardous to everybody. And the defender doesn't just start on their back line. They start in the midfield, creating yeah. that line of defense that won't be breached sort of thing. Yeah, it's cool. So I think it's a, yeah, it's a nice, interesting take on the whole, this is our land, we'll defend it. Sort of yeah. mission. Uh, and obviously that's a uh, su that's suggested to be in the ice fields with uh, the so avalanche that, yes so that is suggested to be played with the avalanche scenario so again in this case uh, the long table edges are the players edges yep. so one of these objective markers would be embroiled in the middle of the avalanche yeah and the center one would be just outside it. So obviously, depending on where you're trying to space out around that objective marker, you would risk being, you know, being on the edge of the avalanche. Yeah. So you could potentially pick up a lot of mortal wounds on the uh, the one <laughs> yeah. under the avalanche. Because believe it or not, it's quite dangerous trying to protect your know, dangerous wildlife that does not want your protection in the middle of an avalanche. Nice. Whilst fending off a tyrannid invasion. Nice. So I think we should uh, call Dave up and uh, get him to send in his Rainbow Warriors. They seem up to the task. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I like that. That's that's a cool little mission, and uh, it's very thematic. But also, as you say, you could easily, you know, make it basically any kind of attacker defender type mission. Yeah. Any any reason for the objectives to be hazardous? You know, it could even just be chemical spills. You know, just by being too close to it. So my immediate thought is Go on. the defenders are snake bites, the attackers are death skulls or whatever, and and the objectives are particularly nasty squigs. They're definitely particularly nasty squigs. Yeah. In fact, it's funny that you shout that out because as an idea, because later tonight, um, my community spotlight actually uh, ties back to this simply because... Um, it is a mission generator of sorts, and one of the missions which comes up so regularly um, whenever I generate a mission on it is the Capture the Squigs <laughs> objective nice. mission. <laughs> Capture yeah. the Squigs. We'll, uh, we'll get to that. Job later. done. Next, our second mission for the night is known as Road Wars. So, can okay. you guess which feature of war this one's been played? Um, yes, I think it's probably the one with the roads. <laughs> that it would be. So, yeah, this is our chemical-saturated um, flatlands. So, roads, desert wastelands, um, incentives for moving fast, charging, being aggressive in melee, and avoiding area terrain. Yeah. All while we play this mission. So... This is a very, very classic take on one of my favourite missions from the original Vigilus series of books, because this is the Conveyor Belt Tabletop mission. Ah, uh, yes. 
it's a classic. It is one of my absolute favourites. So this is one of these missions where it's basically only really playable if you're playing a game where all your area terrain is individually based and you're not playing on a, a structured or sculpted board. Because the idea is that at the end of every player turn, every model, unit, marker, terrain feature, everything on the table moves backwards like nine inches. Yeah. Um, and if anything comes within three inches of the trailing edge of the board, it is considered destroyed or otherwise falls off the table, as it were. Yeah. Um, and at the start of each round, players will place some new markers and terrain on the leading edge as the armies are racing across this, like I say, conveyor belt style battlefield to represent the nice. stretch of land that the battle is travelling over. Yeah, it's it's one of those like absolute classic narrative twists for a game, isn't it? That they've been doing it since. I mean, I don't know how when the first version version of this was, but I definitely remember it being in a White Dwarf article for a, like a third edition mission. Probably, um, yeah. At some so, point. like, they keep bringing this one out every now and again, and it's always a a, a bit of a classic, isn't it? Yeah, um, it's always really fun. And in this case. Um, the reasoning for the destruction for falling behind is because um, you're actually the battle is being fought by forces that are attempting to evade or outrun a stampede of these megafauna <laughs> beasts on this planet. Amazing. So you know, think uh, think Mufasa in the uh, canyon. It's that situation. Wow. Okay. It really is, but 40k'd up. <laughs> right. Everyone is trying to escape the canyon wasteland before uh, they get crushed by the stampede behind them. <laughs> yep. Okay. And so, then, uh, and then everyone, everyone else who was watching has uh, has to live with that trauma for the rest of their lives. I'm sure they'd be fine with it, especially since in this given story example, it is a bunch of evil sons speed freaks who are attempting to chase down a gene stealer cult. Oh. Um, that have infiltrated these um, <laughs> these megafauna harvesting facilities. Because that's the other thing to mention about this. Um, the, this world that's designed for the breeding, butchering, and basically, you know, profiting from these mega creatures. Yep. Um, the processing plants are locations dotted across the surface of the planet, and the rest of the surface is used as basically the massive grazing grounds for yeah, these things. Obviously, that's why everything is trampled flat. You know. Worn away and just you know, roaming wasteland. Obviously, these things are herded at some point, captured, and you know, um, begin the process of being butchered by basically giant roaming mechanical cities. This is almost. Have you have you seen or heard of the film Mortal Engines? Uh, yeah, I remember seeing the trailer. Yeah, I also never saw it, but saw the trailer and <laughs> the premise, and it is that. But 40k. Okay, fair. <laughs> so it's pretty wild. So, to that end, starting with the uh, deployment maps. Again, typical long table edge, Dawn of War style deployment. Except that you only use three quarters of the table length, if that makes sense, as your deployment zone. Okay. So both players have like a leading edge. Of their deployment of their table edge, which doesn't include their units, you've only got the right. other three quarters of it for it to be set up in, 
and that is on the leading edge. So you're going to be moving into that open area, you know, as you're trying okay. to outrun the stampede. Yeah, presumably um, so that you've got somewhere to go. Yes, that's because otherwise point. you could deploy units right at the top and be like, "Well, I've got nowhere to go." Yeah. Uh, between these two, basically starting lines, as it were, for your armies, there'll be an 18-inch no man's land, and mm. there are four objective markers, two of which start six inches away from the center point. So that does mean they are very close to those edges of your deployment zones. Okay. And two of which, which are 12 inches away from the center line, but are 20 inches away from the other center line. So basically, there's like two objectives in that leading edge open space. Okay. You know, so there's two between the armies as they're lining up, and two ahead of the armies as they're going to be running forwards. Right. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, good. Because this is where it now gets complicated. <laughs> Okay. So, these objective markers that I've talked about, these are loot markers. They count as and are treated as regular objectives in all ways, except that they can be picked up by any model that ends any kind of move within range of the marker. And picking them up is automatic, it's not an action or anything like that to do it. You literally just move over it and you denote a model which is now carrying it. Right. Okay. So, make a note of the model carrying the loot marker. If a model carrying any loot markers is removed from the battlefield, it drops all its loot markers within one inches of where it died. Okay. Cool. Uh, two loot markers are where I said before, and two others are on that leading edge, you know, ahead of the armies. Cool. And additionally, as the table, as it were, moves, each battle round, there's going to be new loot markers added to the table, as obviously they come into range, as it were, if that makes sense, you know, as the armies are racing across this yep. um, this battle zone so it's kind of like the aim of the game is to scoop up and keep hold of these objectives as they appear as you're racing forwards so cool. taking that gamble to try and steal ones off the opponent or trying to double back as it were to grab ones that have fallen behind is the real risk you're running because you're not just trying to outrun the stampede you're trying to outrun the stampede whilst collecting the most loot markers yeah. Cool. So then we have the mechanics of the rolling road. Uh, from the second battle round onwards, at the start of the battle round, each model, loot marker, and terrain feature on the battlefield is moved 9 inches in a straight line directly towards the trailing battlefield edge. Uh, if this would cause a model to move wholly or partially off the battlefield edge, that model is destroyed. Any loot markers and terrain features no longer wholly on the battlefield are removed from play. So the objectives can be lost. You know, they will... Um, be trampled. <laughs> um, after all models and terrain features have been moved, both players roll off, starting with a winner. Each player selects one terrain feature and places it anywhere on the battlefield within nine inches of the leading edge and more than three inches from any models, other terrain features, or other battlefield edges. Then, starting with a loser, each player selects one loot marker on the battlefield anywhere. No, each. Then, starting with a loser, each player sets up one loot marker on the battlefield anywhere within 9 inches of the leading battlefield edge, and more than 3 inches from any other models, terrain features, or battlefield edges. Does that make sense? Uh, yes. <laughs> so basically, that is a matter of each player is going to set up a new terrain feature and a new loot marker at the start of yeah. each turn, you know, yeah. by the leading edge. So there's yeah. constantly going to be more stuff rolling on as stuff rolls off the table. 
And then finally, scoring. Uh, the only scoring of interest is the secured at speed. At the end of the game, if one player's units are carrying more loot markers than their opponent, then that player is the winner. And each player earns a number of victory points as shown in the table below. So basically, if you're not playing with secondaries, it is just a matter of whoever has the most loot markers wins. Okay. And if you've Job got equal, it's a draw. Cool. If you are using secondary objective markers, um, then there's actually a amount of victory points awarded, you know, as a primary for right. markers. Fair enough. Um, okay. Yep. Yeah, so that's like if you've got more markers than your hmm. opponent, you score 60 points. If you've got twice as many as your opponent, you score 75. And if you've got three times as many markers as your opponent, you score 90. Cool. Um, okay, so um, notably that means this is... Uh, yeah, like intended to be played as a, a lo as a match play inverted commas game. If you really want to, yes. Um, so this is just a it's build as a strike force mission. But as you can tell, I don't think any GT event anywhere is going to be using no. this as one of their prescribed missions. <laughs> no, it feels more like um, more like the kind of event that uh, that you might run might use something <laughs> like this. Quite possibly, <laughs> but yeah, and like, and like how it's there to basically say, look, obviously the point of this mission is have the most loot wins. But yeah, if you are wanting to play using secondaries and so on, then we'll arbitrarily assign large victory points to having the most loot. Yeah, you know? I mean, it's entirely possible that you might be playing a, a campaign that the margin of victory makes a difference. Exactly, you know, it's it's good to have it there as information. It's not yeah. vital. For the mission to work but it is no. useful for when that information is going to be useful but here's where it gets really tricky because you say about you know playing in a campaign with it and so on there'd have to be certain concessions made because this is actually a mission that involves army limitations on yeah. your selection of units so it's going to affect your army list building um, for actually playing with this now obviously if you're playing crusade you could account for that when taking units from your order of battle. But it's yes. not like you're going to just rock up to a game night and suggest playing this with someone you've not played before at a local club, because they're probably not going to have a legal list for this mission. Yeah. Army limitations are as follows. Each army can only include the following. Vehicle units, biker units, units that can fly, or units embarked within a transport. I mean, cool. Sucks to be Tyranids, but cool. <laughs> right. <laughs> I feel like you could, as always with the Tyranids, probably retcon this to basically allow monsters in place of vehicles, if that makes yeah. sense. I mean, technically, you could play this with Tyranids if everything had flying. Yeah, just have a load of flying stuff. Like, yeah. I mean, the monsters aren't that fast, to be honest. So, But you could yeah. say they're adapted especially for this environment. Yeah. <laughs> Or just put wings on your counterfix, you know. <laughs> uh, um, additionally, for this mission, units cannot be set up anywhere uh, other than in their deployment zones. They cannot be set up in strategic reserve or any other locations, you know, no deep striking, stuff like that. Everything Fair is enough. here and is on the move. Because <laughs> there's nowhere for it safely to come from, if that makes sense, because the rest of the environment around them is very, very dangerous and ever-changing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but for playing this game, since you're only allowed units 
uh, to be in active in transports if they're not a vehicle, bike or flying unit. There are additional rules for transports in this game. The following additional rules apply uh, to affect transport models. Units embarked within the transport model cannot disembark from it. Okay. Each time a transport model is destroyed, any models embarked within that transport model are destroyed. Okay. Ouch. Units embarked within a transport model can use any abilities they have as if they were on the battlefield. When doing so, measure distances and line of sight from the transport model they are embarked within. So, if you've got a captain and his squad of intercessors or whatever in an impulsor, then the intercessors yep. would benefit from the captain's aura. Okay. Because both units behave as though they were on the battlefield. That's interesting. And so on. It's basically a way of allowing vehicle combat, you know, i.e. like a truck full of people to be yeah. shooting their guns and commanding and casting psychic powers in the case of like psychers. You can use stratagems on them, that case, in this mission, because they're considered to be on the battlefield. Yeah. And so on. Um, so, I mean, that's it's a big power boost for those units, but a uh, bit of a big downside for if the transport's destroyed, they're also just destroyed. Yes, because, they, I mean, obviously the idea is that if they're not in a the transport, they're going to just be destroyed by the stampede in an yeah. immediate fashion. Yeah. So... Or otherwise be left behind, you know, and not actually able to keep up with the roaming battle. Yeah. Um, now, technically, there's nothing in here about making non-open-top vehicles count as open-topped. Depending on the vehicle in question, I think it would be worth old-schooling it for things like Chimeras and Rhinos, where they would have that ability to open the hatch and allow X and many numbers of passengers to fire out even though the vehicle doesn't have the ninth edition open top rule. Sure. Uh, well, I, I mean, yeah. Because I just, you know, a Rhino is going to be no good in this because they're having units in back to it. They can't do anything because they only they only count as on the battlefield for the purposes of things like auras and stuff like that. They don't okay. actually count as being stood there, if that makes sense. So they can't shoot by default. Exactly, that's my point. Huh. Like, um, they can use any abilities as if they were on the battlefield. Now the question is, is making an attack an ability? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, in in terms of like just plain normal language, I would say so. But I don't know if if in 40k they're specifically referring to things that aren't, you know, normal stuff. Yeah. So, you know, I think this is going to just be a thing to talk out with, obviously, the person you are yeah. probably preemptively planning to play this with. And Yeah, obviously... like, if you're playing this game, you're playing it with, a, yeah, pl you're planning it in advance, aren't you? You can't just randomly go, oh, by the way, let's play this game. I hope yeah. you just happen to have brought everything in a vehicle. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, if you're going to be playing, you know, mechanized Drukari versus Orc Speed Freaks, then you're not going to have that problem because all the vehicles are up and topped. But yeah. if if you're wanting to play, um, I don't know, you just want to use a Land Raider, you know, with Space Marines, nothing is going to be of use because being in the Land Raider doesn't give it the ability to shoot out of the Land Raider. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. You know, so they need, uh, like, you need to decide whether or not that's going to be a thing you're going to allow to happen or not. Yeah. 
you know, that's a thing to just discuss with your opponent at the time. Yeah, I mean, that's fine. That's yeah. That's kind of how narrative gaming works, isn't it? There's there's exactly. always got to be a little bit of discussion, and the the kind of the wilder the mission, the more likely it is you have to have a bit of a talk about it, how it affects very specific things. Um, but then there are some extra little rules for representing the kind of conflict that is going to be going on here. So this is the speed fueled violence. Units are legible to shoot and charge in a turn in which they fell back. But if they do so, they're at minus one to hit. So, you know, your vehicle cool. and its passengers are able to ram into stuff, you know, and said vehicle then attempt to beat uh, up the rival before backing off and just firing anyway with the passengers or its own guns. And each time a model makes a melee attack, if it made a charge move this turn, add one to that unit's attacks hit roll and one to that attacks wound rolls. Ow. So suddenly, you know, we decide to be blood wolves or space angels. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, because everyone is doing... This is literally like, you know, high-speed combat. They're just ramming vehicles and flying monsters and bikes and everything into each other. It's going to be violent. Yeah. And then, in addition, there is a, a stratagem available to players when playing this mission. Uh, you, it is accelerant boosters. You use this for one CP in your movement phase when your vehicle or biker unit from your army is selected to advance. So at the end of the phase, add six inches to the move characteristics of models in that unit in addition to the increase from the normal rules for advancing. That's, uh, that's going to get quite speedy. It is when for 1 CP you can add 6 inches to a biker unit who are auto-advancing 6s anyway and speeding down a roadway for an additional 6 inches. Yeah. So that's 18 inches of bonus movement on top of your movement stat. Yeah. Or just straight up an extra 6 inches to your Land Raider or your yeah. Venom or battle wagon or whatever you want so um earlier the my initial thoughts when you were describing the mission and the objective placement and stuff was surely everyone's just gonna crowd around the top of the board and and like a far away from the the stampeding herd uh, but given you can move so fast i can definitely see how you might you know try and use all of the board Yes, you could easily allow a unit to fall back towards the rear of the board and then use the accelerant boosters to pull itself back into the fight, you know, yeah. when need be. Or, you know, careen down a road in order to get itself back into combat, as it were, or away from the immediate danger of falling off the table edge. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. That is the Road Wars, a very apt name. Yeah, and I've I've just remembered there's um, uh, the terrain features do damage to you, don't they? Uh, yes, that too. That is also a part of that feature of what. So, if you're hanging out at the top of the board, waiting to jump on the objectives as they come out, you're just as likely to get jumped on by a terrain feature full of scary monsters. That's right. You never saw that hill coming, and that was your undoing. <laughs> yep. Ah, suddenly there's a ruined wall in front of me. Slam. Yeah. 
<laughs> I can see how that, that goes together quite well then. It does. It's one of these ones where I think it, whilst you can see many layers to it when reading it, I think when you play it, you're actually going to realise there's a lot of nuance to playing this mission. Yeah. Especially given the fact that when units pick up loot markers, by getting destroyed, they're dropping it. So then you someone else is going to have to run over and collect it. Potentially, even just trying to gun down your opponent's units holding loot markers without the intention of claiming them is just going to force the opponent to have to lose a turn of movement to try and get back on top of it and pick it up, you know, or risk dropping back to collect it. Yeah. It's a really interesting. interesting one. However, whilst it is interesting and abstract, uh, it is not the most complicated of the missions that we're going to be discussing tonight. Okay. Because that falls to the Butcher Town Thunder Brawl. Well, I don't know what that is, but I like it already. So this is basically, imagine Cities of Death meets Monster Mash, where all the enthusiasm is on big monsters and big tanks. Okay, yes, I like this. This is, as I said, it's basically Cities of Death meets Spearhead. In that it's lots of big monsters and tanks fighting in very dense urban environments. Lots of ruins and walls and buildings. Okay. One of the feature points of Spearhead is that we're using such large and large numbers of monsters, tanks and such. There's usually quite open boards with little terrain or not as much because it's the easiest way for these units to manoeuvre opposite uh-huh. across the battlefields. Yep. Well, Butch Town Brawl solves this issue by making terrain destructible. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, in many ways that inflict much damage on many things. Perfect. So it says here, uh, the terrain layout designer's note. This battle is designed to make use of a large number of area terrain features of the obscuring trait to represent the built-up urban sprawl around the reclamation cities. We recommend placing these in such ways as to break up visibility as much as possible and ensure that there are few opportunities to draw line of sights across the battlefield. Okay. Now, similar to Road Wars, there is a slight addendum to army mustering and building your army lists, but it's not any restrictions. It is instead that any you, any monster units and vehicle units that contain only models with a wounds characteristic of 10 or more, excluding dedicated transport building units, um, gain the Battlefield Colossus keyword. So these big vehicles and big monsters, Temple Swoons, they gain this special keyword for this particular mission. Okay. Now, this ties into many things, including the scoring mechanic and the range of stratagems that are available um, to these units in this mission. Now, in terms of deployment, it's, again, pretty standard-ish Dawn of War. So, you know, long table edges, attacker and defender, 24-inch no man's land. In that no man's land, there are eight objective markers, sort of you know evenly-ish spaced around. These objective markers, similar to loot markers from Road Wars, are nodal emitter objective markers. 
which narratively these are big vats of chemicals because this is the chemical processing plant. Yep. Okay. So as uh, before, um, each time a unit. Uh, so first of all, nodal markers are treated as objective markers for rules purposes. You know, typically being special abilities, stratagems, blah 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 stuff that reference objective markers. But in addition to that. Uh, each time a unit makes a move, if it moves within range of a nodal, a middle objective marker, it can pick it up. If it does so, move the marker, that unit is carrying it, blah, blah, blah. Each time a unit carrying these is destroyed, it drops all node emitter markers it is carrying. And But in addition, at the start of each player's command phase, one model in a Battlefield Colossus unit from their army regains one loss wound for each nodal, a middle marker, objective marker, that unit is carrying. Okay, yep. Because they're using For the healing properties of the chemicals, yes. So if you've got a Carnifix or a Hive Tyrant or whatever, you know, carrying two markers, it's going to regain two wounds at the start of each player's command phase. Cool. Um, otherwise, at the start of each player's command phase, one model uh, with the field in that army. Yes, you don't get it in both players' phases, you just get it in your own. Yep. Then, um, also, uh, all Battlefield Colossus units uh, have domineering resilience, which means that each time they would lose a wound as a result of an attack made by an enemy model, excluding Battlefield Colossus models, uh, you get a 5 plus feel no pain. So, cool. all the, the big guys in this mission gain a 5 plus ignore wounds roll against any attacks coming from non big guy attackers. Nice. So again, emphasis on the big things being uh, powerful here. So then, in terms of the terrain, everything comes with the poor construction keyword. Poor so construction. Area terrain features with the obscuring trait can be smashed down through various means, <laughs> which we will get to shortly. Shorty um, worksmanship. When an area terrain feature is smashed down, it loses the obscuring trait, so first of all, these big vehicles are now going to be able to see each other because the yep. terrain no longer prevents line of sight. Um, it, if it does not already have the light cover terrain trait, it gains it because it's now a ruin. Um, each unit, excluding characters, within that terrain feature suffers D3 plus 3 mortal wounds. Woof, okay. Because the building has been collapsed around them. Nice. Um... Each unit, excluding characters within three inches of the area terrain feature, but not within it, suffer D3 mortal wounds. Only D3. That's fine. Only D3. And each character unit within three inches of the terrain feature suffers one mortal wound. Okay. So if you're a character, no matter where you are, you're taking one. If you're near yep. it but not in it, you're taking D3. And if you are in it, you're taking D3 <sighs> plus three. <sighs> oh boy. Um, now, there are two additional actions available to Battlefield Colossus units. One of them basically is ranged attacks, and one of them is melee attacks, which result in the smashing down of said area terrain features. Okay. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah, so the ranged example is called Knock It Down. Uh, one Battlefield Colossus unit from your army can start to perform this action at the start of your shooting phase. This action is completed at the end of the phase. When this action is completed, select one area terrain feature with the obscuring trait that is visible to the unit performing this action. 
Roll one die. Uh, roll one d6 for each range attack with a strength characteristic of seven or better that models in that unit would be able to make if that unit was selected to shoot. And you would determine random number of shots with weapons that have random numbers and so on. Sure. Um, so you roll d6 equal to that number of attacks, adding two to the roll if the attack would have had a strength characteristic of ten or better. On any rolls of a six plus, that terrain feature is smashed. Down. Nice. And then there's a melee equivalent, you know, for strength 7 or better attacks, and if you're in engagement range of a terrain feature, you attack it. Cool. So your big things can smash down the terrain. So in doing so, you're then causing mortal wounds on everything um, that was in it. You know, so <laughs> you shoot that building and the enemy units in and around it get hurt. That's quite Notably, fun. um, if you smash through it with the melee one, you're not immune to it. So you yourself will take damage by being either in it or even three yep. inches of it. But because that is wounds from a non-colossus source, you would get a five up ignore wounds against it. Fair. Because you're the big hulking thing that just smashed through the building in the first place, I suppose. <laughs> and all this is for these big guys to be smashing buildings to secure these chemical vats as the objective markers that they're carrying around. Nice. Which is how the mission scoring is determined. So you've got um, secured nodal emitters, progressive objective. Score five points for each of the conditions, up to maximum 15. Battlefield Corsa's units from your army are carrying a combined total of two or more objective markers. Units from um, your army are carrying more objective markers than your opponent's units are. That could be any units, doesn't have to be Colossus. And at least one Colossus unit from your army is carrying two or more emitters. Okay. Two, two objective markers. So, yeah. Have two or more across your army, have two or more in a single Colossus, and just have more than your opponent. Right. Yes. Okay. Yep. Then we have Alpha Positioning, Progressive Objective. At the end of each player's command phase, that player scores five victory points if A, Battlefield Colossus unit from their army is within six inches of the center of the battlefield. Okay. So you're jostling to you know, be the one yep. holding the alpha position. And then finally, end game objective, master of the battlefield. At the end of the battle, if one or both players have any Battlefield Colossus units on the battlefield. The player with the Battlefield Colossus unit with the highest power rating on the battlefield scores 20 victory points. Nice. If both players have Colossus units on the battlefield that are tied for highest power rating, both players score 20 victory points. Sure. So the big guys are the ones who are going to benefit from carrying the objective markers, are the ones capable of smashing down the buildings, are the ones Josh, uh, like fighting for centre position of the board, and for being the biggest surviving big guy at the yep. end of the game. It is all about them, isn't it? Yes. And that's not including the five stratagems we have here, which are all tied to Battlefield Colossus units. Okay. So, just to run through them in short order, they all have various CP value and effects. So, so all these stratagems are available to Battlefield Colossus units at various phases of the game, but in order to use them, they have to be carrying one of the objective markers. 
because it's basically all about how they're using the chemicals that they've got okay. to enhance themselves yep. or their weapons. So as soon as you pick one up, that kind of unlocks the ability for these Battlefield Colossus units to use these stratagems. Cool, cool. Yeah. So you've got Colossal Firepower, 2 CP. Max shots for any blast weapons you're carrying. Okay. Devastating shot, 1 CP. Auto wound roll for a single ranged attack. So arachnotecular targeting or whatever it is. That yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, Stimmed Frenzy, 1 CP Reroll Hit Rolls and Exploding Sixes in melee Tasty <laughs> 1 CP Pile Driving Strikes Plus okay. 2 Strength and plus 1 damage to all melee attacks for that round Yes <laughs> So, you know various ways of being better as a big horrible monster but then the real interesting one is for 1CP, Unstoppable Impact. Yes. Use this stratagem in your charge phase when a Battlefield Colossus unit from your army that is carrying one or more nodal middle objective markers finishes a charge move. Select nice. one enemy unit that is within engagement range of that unit and roll 1d6. On a 2 to 5, that unit suffers d3 mortal wounds. On a six, that unit suffers three mortal wounds. So far, cool. so we're yeah. cramming speed. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's a it's a run them over, charge them, do mortal wounds. Strategy. Mortal wounds are good. Yeah, cool. Here's the interesting part. Okay, if that enemy unit was within three inches of any area terrain features with the obscuring terrain trait, i.e., not yet smashed down. <laughs> yeah. Then this, when this stratagem is used, select one of those area terrain features, and that enemy unit suffers D3 additional mortal wounds because you've smashed them into the solid building. Nice. Right. So so far, they're suffer on a two plus, they're suffering D3 mortal wounds for being hit by you. If they're within three inches of a solid building, they're suffering additional D3 mortal wounds because they've been smashed into said building. Yep. Right, and then finally, as part of that stratagem, the selected area terrain feature is then smashed down. <laughs> okay, so the building then comes falling down on them, which means that if they were next to it, they're then suffering a third set of D three mortal wounds. And if they were actually inside it when you complete the charge move, that means they're going to have suffered. A total of three D three plus three mortal wounds before the monster slash vehicle attacks them. <laughs> oh, that's great! Excellent. It, it is not going to go well for that unit. <laughs> wow, this is wild. <laughs> I love it. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, when are we playing this one? <laughs> As soon as we have a lot of buildings and a lot of big monsters to throw at each other. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, that that is the whole mission. But you okay. have to remember that that one is proposed to be played in the chemical vat theatre of war. Okay. Where there are, in addition to the objective markers, there's also four to six of these chem stations about. Yep. <laughs> that people are also roiding it up on. Nice. So, two two thoughts. Firstly, 
you said that the the action to knock down buildings in the shooting phase is called knock it down. In the one in the fight phase, is it is it just called oh yeah? <laughs> uh, the fight phase one was called tear straight through. Okay, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and secondly, this there is a suggested theater of war. Is there also a suggested army of renown? Well, <laughs> whilst technically there isn't one specifically for the mission, but there is also kind of one specifically for this mission. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, there is. So, yeah. So in this issue is also where we get the army of renown for the Tyranid Crusher Stampede. So I think we will take a quick break and then we will come back with our <laughs> Battlefield Colossus army of renown. You kids listen up now, and listen good. The boss has got a message for you all. It looks like some of the boys have been joining the war before they got themselves a proper pen job. How are you kids supposed to get any proper crumping done without a lucky blue chopper or dead flashy shooter, eh? The boss is going to be breaking heads if he captured any of yous without a proper pen job. So get your ugly hides to the paint boy over at Narrative War Painter. He'll fix you up good and proper, you hear me? Narrative Wah Painter is now open for painting commissions. Specialising in good quality, army-wide standards, you can get a quote today by contacting me at narrativewargamer at gmail.com to discuss any potential hobby projects, and so I can help you conquer your horde of grey plastic. You can also check out examples of my work over on Instagram at narrativewargamer. What did I say? Right, you kids. Get your loot in the truck and zog off to the paint boy. It better be ready and faster when you get back. And make sure to tell them Red Tooth sent you. You might get some extra special. And we're back, guys. And now we're going to be talking about the Tyranid Crusher Stampede. So, yeah, very much the army of renown for the the uh, butcher town thunder brawl <laughs> um big monsters doing big monster things and you probably have heard of this one as a get a little uh, attention elsewhere and other content yeah. covering it because just big a little nids bit. do big nid things yeah it's a big deal <laughs> it really is so it's interesting that this is the first time we've seen an army of renown outside of a warzone supplement but it basically follows the same premise and sort of standard template of operation as it were um there's a couple of restrictions which then get a bunch of benefits usually tied to units um that you cannot can't take in the army and in addition to that by sticking to these restrictions you also get access to a small selection of additional warlord traits stratagems and in this case psychic powers mm. So this is a Tyranid Army of Renown. Uh, the restrictions for Obviously. it... Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, the restrictions for it are that you cannot include any swarm units and cannot contain any models with a wounds characteristic of two or less. So you are looking at all your mid-weight Tyranids and up. Warriors, yep. Lictors and such. Uh, up to Carnifixes, Trigons, blah, blah, blah. Basically means no Hormagaunts, no Gene Stealers, no yep. Ripper Swarms. Little things. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
For each unit in your army that does not have the monster keyword, you must include at least one monster unit. So a bit like how you know the Heretic Astartes need to have one unit of them per cultists. Yeah. You need to have a monster per non-monster unit. You can't just have an army of warriors. Yeah, you do need to have some of your big monsters in your stampede. Yes. Uh, and all your units must be drawn from the same hive fleet. Although that's kind of becoming a little redundant in the uh, new edition of army structure anyway, where everything has to be from the same sub-faction anyway. Yeah. Um, but the benefits for doing so is that all units from your army gain the Crusher Stampede keyword. Uh, Non-monster units gain shielded by the hive mind, and monster units gain hulking behemoth. Um, so to that end, your non-monster units all gain uh, a five plus invun, and your monster units all gain a five plus invun and reduce all damage they suffer by one. Yeah. Um, and models in that unit count as a nut. Yeah, models in that unit count as a number of models equal to their remaining wounds for the purposes of determining controlling objectives, which is a big deal for monsters. You know, I'm not just one model, I am X many models because I'm yeah. a very big model. Yeah. There is also another stealth drawback in the fact that um, these units do not gain high fleet adaptions, so you don't get your chapter tactic for being, you know, high fleet Leviathan or Kronos or whatever. You no. still are that fleet for the purposes of like warlord traits, relics, stratagems and so on. Which is uh, important because it means it combines with the Leviathan supplement yes, if you, you wanted can, to. Yeah, you can have a high fleet Leviathan Crusher Stampede Army of Renown. Yeah, which means you don't <laughs> get the six up feel no pain thing that Leviathan gets, but you get a million stratagems to use. Yeah. Um... And then, in addition, obviously these units have access to the uh, war traits, stratagems, and psychic powers presented here. Yep. So, I think almost all of them are basically make unit better in combat, aren't they? Yeah, all varieties of get pluses to hit, wound or damage, gain transhuman, yep. you know. <laughs> um, yeah, it's cool stuff. Charge, do ramming attacks blah 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 it's basically the epitome of make unit better hit things harder yeah i, I think it's probably biases. what you expect for something called a crusher stampede isn't it yeah <laughs> like it, there's mean, no subtlety there yeah it is to be expected and it is cool that you know as a concept it lets you run Nidzilla. it lets you run big yes. monsters and that is your army and there yeah. are many a tyranny player over the years who that has been the, the very draw for the faction for them. Yeah. So it is nice to see as an option. Just like how the speed mobs and the speed war are a thing that orc players have always enjoyed. Big nids is always a thing Tyranids have enjoyed. Yeah, it's not like some sort of weird niche army build that no one knows about. It's, you know, it, over the history of the game, it's been pretty consistently a thing Tyranid players like. Um, and it's aside from the cool narrative of it because obviously it it, well, it would represent a kind of like late stage Tyranid invasion or in, I'm guessing in this case Tyranids who live there <laughs> yeah um, but it also is good because you know the, the Tyranid monster units have uh, not really been very good for the most part for most of 8th and 9th edition and probably to be honest back in like 7th and 6th and edition before that as well 
So it's nice that there's there's a specific thing that says, hey, those cool models you like that you haven't really been able to use properly. Here you go. Have a bunch of bonuses. Now they're tougher. You can actually use them properly. Here's some strats to make them fightier so they're actually good in combat as well, like they're supposed to be. Uh, it definitely feels like... I mean, it's it, it's kind of a, a stopgap, isn't it? For whenever the next Tyranid Codex comes out, we don't know what that will be. Um, It'll be on but Ascension this, Day. Everyone knows that. Well, yes. But uh, <laughs> th this means you can play that sort of Tyranid army that you want, uh, and it will be quite good. And in fact, I mean, we're not we're not really talking competitive stuff here, but it is quite good, and lots of people have been taking them to tournaments and stuff. Yeah, but the funny thing with that is that that's, as you say, it's almost because the faction as a whole has kind of been lacking in effectiveness in terms of competitive play, and this is the most valid method of being efficient that Tyranids yeah. as a faction have right now. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's up there alongside um, a sort of normal Leviathan army now. Yeah. But the fact that they came out quite close together, Leviathan supplement, and then this means that Tyranids kind of have two suddenly viable options in the sort of competitive side of the game, which is kind but, of weird. Yeah. It's, it's nice, I guess. Um, it just sucks to be a Kraken-based horde of Horn yeah. right now. <laughs> I mean, I think for the most part, people aren't going to be that bothered about which colour scheme it is. It's not like Ultramines yeah. where they all got big, like, use upside down on their armor and stuff <laughs> uh like um yeah it's uh it's cool yeah i mean so i do think that basically this as an army of renown ticks all the boxes for being an army of renown in my in like yeah. in my mind like really well because like so one it does that thing where it does impose you know very specific restrictions but in turn unlocks an old basically an alternate way of playing the army yeah. that you can't really otherwise do and provides the tools to make that viable the whole model you know, the monsters counting as models equal to the number of wounds they have left that's a thing yeah. right now no other monsters in the game can do you know in other factions but that's a thing that makes those monsters suddenly really viable yeah. to hold objectives when you don't have units of obsec troops you know and infantry yeah it's um it's cool it's things i um, was gonna say and i've forgotten yeah well so the other point i was gonna make is that um not only does it then also represent a really thematic and cool looking aspect of a race or faction on the tabletop beating all the big monsters but one of the things that i think really does show that a great army of renown exists as a concept is that I imagine there are many Tyranid players out there who already have collections or armies and they don't even have to buy anything to make this work. They just go, oh, I already owned all the things to make this army of renown. In the yep. same way that there are, I imagine there were many orc players who had lots of war bikes and buggies and went, oh, suddenly speed mobbies you know, an army of renown. It's basically, there are players out there who were already probably doing this anyway because that was what they wanted to do because yeah. of the fun narrative of the army. But, and the, what they were doing was sacrificing on the efficiency of it to play as a, an army in 9th edition because they wanted to play their narrative. And now this just lets them do that in a way that actually feels viable as an army now. Yeah. 
It's uh, <laughs> it's funny. It's it's actually more viable as an army for me than just a normal tyrannid army because yeah, the mainline faction. Th th like, this is tyrannids, but you don't need to take Hiveguard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I suppose in a way it was kind of like what the Skitari Vanguard was for a little while. <laughs> it's yeah. like, this is just a better version of the army. Um, it, maybe that's been redressed a little bit now, but, you know, whereas I suppose arguably things like the speed mob, like, this is taking a version that was valid anyway, like, this, the freebooter speed mob in particular was doing the rounds yeah. before the rounds yeah, that was out. that was good before. But the difference there is the fact that orcs as a whole weren't terrible if they weren't the speedwar. There yep. were other yep. good ways of running orcs, and then the speedwar yep. then became its own thing. Um, whereas this, like you say, kind of has become the way to play Tyrannies right now, or one of two. Yeah, when definitely. Within a span of months ago, there was no legitimate way for a competitive player to play them, really. Yeah, well, like, there were some very specific builds, but. Yeah, this is. It, I mean, it's it's good for competitive stuff and also obviously good for us narrative people because it means you can take all sorts of crazy stuff like Haruspexes if you want. Yeah, I've already seen a couple of people online and friends and you know chat groups and stuff saying like, "Oh, this is just how I run Tyranids now. Like, <laughs> this is what I was doing anyway, or this is what I kind of always wanted to do, but just couldn't bring myself to do it because it was terrible, <laughs> even if it was fun." <laughs> Well, now it's both fun and good. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I wanted to mention it because, you know, we on this show do enjoy our armies of renown. Um, yep. They have been particularly you know, cool and interesting ones in past publications. This is the first time we've seen an Dwight Dwarf, and it's a cool one. Yeah, so it's, it, it's good, isn't it? Yeah, just because it's good and competitive doesn't mean that isn't also a narrative. Yeah, and doesn't mean why. we don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> So it does appear in our uh, cross-section of our Venn diagram of listeners, yeah. I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I think um, on a, on a slight, slightly wider subject, the armies of renown are probably the the best implication, or like uh, the best version of the, the sort of formation style thing they've been trying to do for several editions. That's true, actually. I would agree. Um, obviously... <laughs> Yeah, the heyday of formations and similar have come and gone, thankfully. But yeah, the Armies of Renown definitely seems like the latest iteration of specialist detachments or what yeah. have you that actually seem to have that right level of validity to them. I wouldn't yeah. say any of them have been flops yet. Not really. Um, the I would say the Crusher Stampede and the Skatari um, veteran cohort were the only ones which immediately sort of redefined how to play the faction um, uh, I, I, I mean I'm not even sure if the, the Skitari veteran cohort did it was I, I mean it did for like, a time because of the stratagems um, that were floating around as well at the time but I suppose there not, were a few yeah um, but I know that one has eased off a bit now yeah uh, in the same way that I imagine the Crusher Stampede will probably ease off in its you know hot take at the moment in a little bit, but that's not going to mean it's not going to be uh, <laughs> in a little bit when uh, there are tower armies with three hammerheads. <laughs> yeah, maybe <laughs> <laughs> three three hammerheads and um, storm surges. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I think it's good. I think it's all around good. It's good fun, and I uh, would love to see more armies of renown, and I'm sure we will. Yes, I think this is probably one I will try and get on the tabletop. Yeah, and you'll have to let me know how it goes, assuming I'm not on the other side of the table from it. In which case, <laughs> I'll find out firsthand. Yes. <laughs> so then, that has been our uh, flyby uh, dive into Flashpoint Octarius. Yeah, six, like six say, months of content. Yeah, six months of content squished together in one episode, but it's all good, and there's even more of it in there. Um, I mean, strictly speaking, not even in the Flashpoint series, there was one issue that included a army of renown for a torchbearer fleet. Yeah, that's um, kind of cool. Was interesting as well. So yeah, that's in there as well. If you go check that out, but you know, we haven't even got time to sort of go over that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and some of the other stuff that's in there. So there are a couple of relics dotted about. There are some unique data sheets and other bits, but as a whole, those missions of Peters of War and this Army of Renown, I think, were the highlights, and I think they've all been excellent. Yeah. And I would love to play some of these missions. We and shall have to do that. Yeah, we'll have to make sure we, we find some place, location, and time, and perhaps the back end of April in mm. or close to Nottingham. Yes, that sounds like a good place and time. <laughs> Where there may be an opportunity. Who knows? Who can say? Who can say? But what we can say is our community spotlights for tonight. Um, because we have a few things that we want to shout out before we round out the episode. Um, and since it has been a mission-heavy episode, I felt it was only appropriate to include a mission-focused community spotlight. So... Uh, if any of the listeners have recently been in the Facebook group, um, they will have seen a post by Philip Spence, uh, which includes his link to his Mission Fabricator Cogitator, as he calls it, which is uh, a very Mechanicus-inspired name for Mission Generator. Um, and basically, it's very much in the spirit of the Open War cards, uh, but you don't need to own the Open War cards in order to play it, which is the advantage it has. Yep. So it's a link that he's uh, put in the Facebook group and I will include in the show notes for this episode below. And yeah, basically, if you click that link, it takes you to the webpage um, from his Beyond the Tabletop um, so like platform. Um, and it will generate a 40k mission for you on the fly, which includes a planet, a environment effect, and a objective uh, to complete and it's basically a similar concept to drawing those sort of cards from your open war deck yeah uh, some of it is inspired from that and um, some of it is unique including the capture the squigs objective nice um and yeah it's just a another great way to play the game and uh, philip has done some brilliant work um on that platform and it's uh, it's a real fun just to go on there and keep refreshing the page in order to generate <laughs> new missions and just sort of see what sort of stuff there is. So, if you've ever fancied trying out the concept of like the open war deck, this is an opportunity to go try out something very similar for free without yeah. needing to pick it up. Um, so yeah, I particularly like how there's a um, a planet generated for it. So yeah. you've got a sort of a little bit of narrative in there, just uh, just right off the bat. Yeah, you know, like, it's a forge world, or it's an agri world, or it's an ice world, it's got a population of this, you know, 
there's some nice little information and it, not to be missed out as well it comes up with a lovely picture of it as well there is there's an actual sort of graphic and design for the planet and it all looks very nice as well as being really functional for generating your games for 40k so yeah um go check that out either follow the link below or go check it out in the facebook group um, thank you philip you can find that over on beyond the tabletop and yeah go play some of these very fun games cool how about yourself dan okay um so i can't remember if we've uh if we've we've ever done a, a spotlight for arbiter ian um but i'll do it now anyway well you've got a one in 40 chance that we have <laughs> <laughs> quite and in so, either uh, case yeah, i'm probably sure he's probably worth a shout out again yeah he's so he's, he's a youtube person uh also on twitter and everything arbiter ian who does 40k content he does kind of a sorted mix of um like uh kind of lore and history type stuff uh he like um like looking back at how sort of the horus heresy what started in games workshop history and then became the big thing that it is today uh, that, yeah, that kind of you, stuff yeah you mean a mix of like in-game law and real world yeah history yeah. of the game yeah yeah it's good stuff he's also got some like um bits about his armies he's got uh he, he's he's got a squat army uh, and as you might imagine by the name an, an rbt's army both of which obviously are like you know um kind of uh, using proxy rules uh and he also does uh like a like a book club thing where he, he talks about um assorted 40k novels uh which is um because I've, I've been listening to the the eisenhorn uh audiobooks recently so I was like, oh yes, I want to listen to what other people think of these. So that's where I found it from uh, and, and listened to a bunch of them on the recent night shifts. Uh, but yeah, it's very good. It's very um, kind of uh, cleanly presented YouTube stuff uh, with a little bit of yeah good humour and not too serious. So I think it would be... You know, it's the kind of thing that our, our listeners would probably like yeah excellent definitely go check it out um so yeah i think that is gonna be everything for tonight hopefully it's not been too much of a uh, blitz through all those rules and formations and environments but it's uh something i did not want to let us pass by before we move on to natchland and the return to vigilus i think it's fair to say that we uh we tore straight through <laughs> yes we did until next time guys this has been the narrative wargamer podcast helping you to discover more ways to play 40k bye <laughs>